0: Since the school year began, we have been doing a sermon series through the books of First and 2 Samuel. And today, I would like to ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, as we, as we preach through these, these books, one of the things, what that's called is it's called expository preaching. And it, it, it's preaching through entire books of the Bible. And while we don't do it perfectly, we, we try to um, adhere to that. And one of the benefits of expository preaching is that it forces preachers to talk about things and address passages that they might rather not talk about, that they might rather skip. And that has certainly been the case for the last few weeks for me as your pastor. The last couple of weeks, I've had to talk about David's adultery. They talk about uh, David's murder in order to cover up. His adultery, and and then the loss of David and Bathsheba's child, and uh, those those were in chapters eleven and twelve, um, and those were hard topics, and unfortunately for me, the hard topics don't end. Fortunately, the subject today's of today's passage just isn't is it's just not any easier. In fact, if anything, it it's even more difficult. And part of it, what makes it so difficult is I know that for. There are some people in this room that this is a very personal issue. Now, rather than reading the entire passage, I, I, I'm just, we're just going to work through it today in, in the sermon. But in order to do that, I, I want to take a few minutes to sort of set the whole thing up a little bit. All right? There, there, there's four major, and before I do that, I'm just going to, yeah, you know what? Yeah, there's four major characters in, the, in this passage. First of all, there's, there's King David. He is the king. He has just recently been exposed for his adulterous behavior and for the murder of Uriah. And then there is Amnon. Amnon is David's eldest son. He's the first in line to become the next king, all right? And then there is Tamar. Tamar is, Tamar is, is David's daughter, but she's the half-sister of Amnon, all right? And, and then the, the fourth main character that we're looking at today is Absalom. Absalom is also a son of David's. He's the full brother of of Tamar, and he's a half-brother, again, of Amnon, his older brother, all right? So try to keep those characters in line of who these people are. But let's pray for now. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that godly men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would grant us today your blessing as we look at this passage together. That we might find healing and hope in the midst of all of this darkness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus' holy name. Amen. Again, Amnon is David's oldest son. He's the natural heir. He's first in line to become the next king of Israel. And he is convinced that he is in love with his half-sister Tamar. Yet he is tormented to the point of even being ill over the fact that he can't have her, that that it's forbidden, that it is against the Deuteronomic law. Nevertheless, he refuses to check his lust, and he pretends to be ill, and then he arranges it so that his half-sister Tamar is summoned to his bedside in order to make a meal for him and then care for him. Read along with verse 11 and 12 with me here. It says, But when when Tamar brought the meal near to him to eat, he took a hold of her, and he said to her, Come lie with me, sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. What's translated here, outrageous fool, could also be translated, you would be known as a godless wretch or an inordinately wicked man if you do this thing. <clears throat> now while Tamar is disgusted by his proposal, while she knows that it is, is forbidden in an attempt to reason with Amnon, in an attempt to, to get herself out of this situation, she suggests that he first speak to their father and get in order to get his blessing. But in verse 14, it says that Amnon would not listen to her. And, he, and being stronger than her, um, he violated her and he lay with her. And then as soon as it was over, his, his countenance towards her changed. He immediately began to despise her. Look at verse 15 and through 17 with me. It says, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So that, he, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man to serve him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now here's an interesting point Um, the the English translators like the NIV have inserted the word woman, but but what he actually says is he says, put this out of my sight. In other words, um, what I mean, Tamar, it's as if Tamar were a bit of impersonal trash that he just throws to the curb. And before I go any further, I want to reiterate something. Listen, I know this is a difficult subject. And I suppose it's possible that somebody might think that a subject like this should should be addressed at some other time than during Sunday morning worship. But here's the thing. We live in a day and an age where there is, and I would say praise God, where there is a movement that encourages women to speak up about such things. Praise God for that. We live in a day and an age where there is a great deal of cultural conversation regarding this subject. Therefore, the church has a responsibility and an obligation to speak to these issues. Uh, one of the statistics I was given this, this last week in the, in the pastor's meeting that I, that I attend, um, I didn't check the stats out and confirm them, but I trust the, the guy who shared it, um, that one in four women and one in six men have been the victims of some sort of sexual abuse. But you know what, even if, it, even if those statistics aren't completely accurate, they can't be far off. Um, so I am well aware of the fact that this subject is more painful, more difficult, and more personal for some than it is for others. I'm well aware of the fact that, that some of what I have to say might be incredibly difficult to hear today. And while I'm not going to apologize for speaking about the subject, I realize that, you know what, there's a great deal of room Um, for error in regard to what I might say or or what I might leave unsaid. Last week, um, somebody was upset by some things that I said in the sermon. And and thank God, they they called my wife and and talked to her about it, and she encouraged them to come and talk with me. I met with the person, and, and we went down, and the person was able to see, listen, they understood that their circumstances were causing them to really hear things maybe differently than what I said I won't deny the fact that I can always say things better, but but the reality was I was able to help this person realize that that what what she thought I said I I didn't actually say, all right, and and I realize there's a great deal of room for that in today's message. So please don't if 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 I leave if I say something that you don't understand or you, that bothers them or if I leave something unsaid, please feel free to come talk to me. I don't feel defensive about this. Feel free to go talk to one of the elders or one of the deacons or talk to my wife. I, I'm not offended by that. Um, but but don't, don't be silent about it. And I want to say this as well. <clears throat> well, I'm not going to stand here and pretend as if I can understand the pain and the shame that, that some of you you have to bear um, because of something that has happened to you, I think it's appropriate that I share something with you that I've never shared with anyone other than my wife or with uh, the few men in this church that have been through officer training. And that is that I was molested as a child. So I do know something about the shame of sexual sin. Um, as I said, I've never shared this in such a public setting before, but, but I'm doing so in now in hopes that others might realize that they can be free to talk about it. That others might see that the church really is a safe place to talk about these things and to, to find and to seek the help that that they need. Um, in in the worship bulletin, you'll see there's two links to two resources, and I realize this is a, that's a small part of it, but there's two links to, to two different resources. One is is a book to help you speak with your children um, on how to protect their bodies. It's called God Made All of Me. Um, So if parents would like to have that, that's a great resource that has been referred to me. And our denomination put together a paper and uh, addressed the issue of domestic abuse and sexual assault just in 2022. And and it's a beautiful response to to these issues. And so I encourage you to look at those. Feel free to come and speak with us here at the church. Let Let us do what we can do to help. But for now, I want to get back to the text. And what I want you to see is that, once again, David's adultery with Bathsheba, and once again, just like David's, like we saw last week, just like David's adultery with Bathsheba in his murder of Uriah, the Bible doesn't try to to hide the sin of his son Amnon. The, The Bible doesn't try to sweep this horrid event under the rug. It doesn't pretend like it didn't happen. Here's something else that I think is important to see. This part of the story is told from Tamar's point of view. Um, This is important because if we're to understand just how evil this was, we have to hear about it from Tamar's perspective. And I'm glad that I can stand and tell you that the biblical writer was very intentional about making sure that that happened. What he wants his readers to see is that not only was Tamar forcefully violated, he wants to see that she had to bear the added shame that it was done to her by a family member. That this this was incestuous. But look at me at what she does after being thrown out by Amnon. This is remarkable. Verses 18 and 19, it says, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And Tamar put ashes on her head, and she tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head, which was also a form of mourning, And she went away, look at this, crying aloud as she went. You see that? Tamar was not trying to hide what happened to her. but Rather, she was crying out for help. And who is it that should have been there to help? Her father. He should have been there to defend her honor. And not only that, her king, who happened to be her father, he had a moral obligation to execute justice on her behalf. Verse 21 says that when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And you know what? He should have been angry. His anger was a good thing. But that was all. And that is a bad thing one commentary writer i read this week said it this way david could barely contain his rage but unfortunately he did so why didn't david act on her behalf why did david remain silent why would david simply do nothing and why is that somewhat of a common response of people you know, I think there's a few possible reasons. One is that it's very possible that this whole thing was just one more embarrassing episode for David and his family. So like he had tried with his adulterous fare, he just wanted to sweep it under the rug. He wanted to minimize it. He wanted to put it in the past and just, just move on. And while that is, is an absolutely terrible excuse, it may have been part of his motivation. It may also have been that Amnon was the first in line for the throne. And if David deals with this, then it could create instability for the future kingdom of Israel. But those may have been variables for why he did this, other than just being being horrible here. But there's a third possibility, and I think this one may even be more likely. It is possible that David found himself which you might call a prisoner of his own folly. After all, how could David call Amnon to account when he was guilty of the very same thing, when he was guilty of taking for himself a woman that was forbidden to him? It seems to me that David very well may have lost his moral authority to enforce the law. Nevertheless, regardless of why David refused to act as both a father and as a king, he was responsible for protecting Tamar. And that, I mean, that's what fathers and kings are supposed to do. Tamar should have been exonerated, and Amnon should have been punished. You know, one of the features of this story that for me this week has been so heartbreaking is actually what's not in the story, what's not included. And and while we can't say for certain that he didn't, there's no indication that David even offered Tamar any comfort. But instead, her brother Absalom did. Absalom stepped up for her. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now I recognize on the surface this, Absalom's words don't sound very comforting, and and they probably weren't, but he did provide for her, he did bring her into his home, and he did care for her, and if if you've taken the time, like I encourage you to read the rest of the story, I think you may agree with me. I think what Abel is trying to say here, what what Abel is saying here is, listen, he's telling her, listen, hold on to your peace for now. If it were any other man, I would avenge your honor at once. But since he is our brother, we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to bide our time. I think that's what he's saying to her. And for the next two years, it appears as if Amnon's going to get away with this, that, that he's going to go unpunished. And, and for the next two years Tamar's heartache and sorrow was ignored. She's just sort of cast aside. And during that time Absalom becomes seething with, with anger. Look at verse 22 it says but Absalom, Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So while it's clear that Absalom hated Amnon because of what he'd done, it's also clear that that his hatred was what you might call a sophisticated hatred. He was cool, he was patient, and he just sort of, his rage just sat there and sort of simmered during that time. In fact, this went on for two full years. For Amnon to let his He waited two full years for Amnon to finally let his guard down. Once that happened, he invited all of his brothers, including Amnon, to a family get-together about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. He invited all of his brothers to a harvest celebration. And we're told that once Amnon's heart was, the text says, Mary with wine, Absalom finally had him killed. When the news gets back to David, he arose, he tore his garments, and he laid on the ground, and he wept bitterly. And We're told that he mourned for his son day after day. Then The text doesn't make clear which son. Absalom, on the other hand, fled, and he went to the north north and then to the east side of the, the Jordan River, out in sort of a desolate area, and he remained there for three years. During that three-year period, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Now, this is where we're going to leave off today. It's also where we're going to pick up next week. There is no doubt that David's refusal to act on Tamar's behalf provoked or incited Absalom's anger. And I think rightfully so. As I said a moment ago, the failure of a father, the failure of a king, the failure of any legitimately appointed authority to act as they should is reason for anger. I mean, when the justice system fails, it can be absolutely infuriating. And it's not uncommon for us to want to do what Absalom did. It's not uncommon for us to want to take matters into our own hands. That's why we go to movies. The feature of the likes of Liam Neeson, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and, of course, my very favorite, Steven Seagal. I mean, that's why these movies are so successful. That's why they're, they're so popular. We want justice. We want we, we like watching what these guys do. It feels good. It feels right. It feels just. And like I said last week, if you hurt my daughter... And my Or my wife, all right? Let me clarify that. If you were here, you know why I'm adding that. If you hurt my daughter or my wife, I'm going to want justice. And apart from the Holy Spirit restraining my evil, I'm not sure what I could be capable of. I'm going to want justice, and I should want justice. What we see in the event of this story as well as next week is that, that while David in his anger shows too much restraint we also see here that Absalom in his anger shows too little or even no restraint I said I know we love these, these movies we love that people taking justice in I know we love them but, but here's the thing while Absalom's impulse is right while his anger is, is righteous We must never forget that God has ordained the means of justice. And therefore, when David as his father, David as the king, refused to act, Absalom should have gone to David and confronted him. He should have perhaps taken Nathan, David's pastor, with him to confront him about it. But there's no indication that he did that. Um, Listen, I know this isn't what we want to hear um, but regardless of how painful and infuriating David's negligence was, it was not Absalom's place to administer justice. I mean, just think back to the whole first half of this, this, this sermon series. When David was not yet the king, when David did not yet have the, the, the authority, uh, the, the civil authority over the people, how many times did we see David refuse to take matters in his own hands? How many times did we see David refuse to take vengeance on his own behalf, even though it felt like it was very reasonable for him to do so? I mean, over and over and over and over again, David refused to retaliate against or lift his hand against Saul. He refused to retaliate or lift his hand against the Lord's appointed king, the Lord's appointed authority. But instead, over and over and over again, David left it up, to the Lord to judge between he and his enemies. Over and over and over again, David chose the hard path of faith and trusting in the long game of trusting the Lord to judge. You see, David knew that if the Lord wanted to act against the king, there was a million ways the Lord could do that. And the Lord didn't need his help. And as hard as that is, it is often what we are called to do. You know, there's something interesting about this passage is that God is never even mentioned. It seems as God, if God is as silent as, as David was. So if, that's the, if, if, if God's not mentioned, why is this passage even in the Bible? Well, I think here, number one, all of this is a reminder that David is not the king the people need. And I would add, regardless of who is elected president this coming November, he is not the kind of leader we ultimately need. And this passage reminds us of that. This is a reminder that regardless of what the courts may or may not do on your behalf, any justice, I mean any justice that we may find here in this life, regardless of what it is, is nothing but a mere shadow of the kind of justice that the Lord promised us to carry out on behalf of his children, on behalf of those subjects of his kingdom. To us, God is both a righteous king, but he is also a good father. In every way that David failed, God will not fail. And this God, this father, promised us to carry out what you would call a perfect justice. Here's the other thing. What we need, what we need is a king who has not been and cannot be compromised. What we need is a king who has the moral high ground. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I don't know if you've ever looked at it from this angle, but God has already given us a demonstration of what His justice looks like. God has already given us a demonstration of His holy and righteous ang- what His holy and righteous anger is capable of. He has already given us a demonstration of what awaits those like Amnon who remain unrepentant to their sin. You see, what Amnon and the others like him deserve is what Jesus received. Think about it, Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was nailed to the cross and he was executed. You see, Jesus received the kind of punishment that awaits people like Amnon. He received the kind of punishment Amnon deserved. You know, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9, 11, John tells us about something that he saw in heaven. Look at that with me. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. In other words, he saw the martyrs that had been abused and mistreated. And look, look at this. He says, they cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they, will each, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What I want you to notice here Is that these are saints of the Lord who have been redeemed. And they are covered in white robes. They're covered in the righteousness of God. These are saints of the Lord whose thoughts have been set free from the bondage of sin and wrong thinking. These are the saints of the Lord who know firsthand the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord that they have received yet they are still crying out for justice. Therefore, don't ever, I mean, do not ever let anyone shame you for crying out for it as well. Right? I want, I want to make that very clear. We should look for the Lord to bring justice and carry out righteous acts against evil. But even with that being said, I believe there's one last thing that that we all must consider. While there's not a believer in this room who has not in some form or fashion been the victim of somebody else's wrongdoing, who has not found themselves crying out to the Lord for justice, there's not a believer in the room who hasn't felt that way, one degree or another. It is also true that there is not a believer in this room who has not in one, some form or fashion been the perpetrator or the cause of someone else's suffering. There's not a believer in this room who in some form or fashion has not found themselves crying out to the Lord for forgiveness and, and for mercy. The fact is, we, here's the thing. We all have much in common with Tamar. We do, but the reality is we also have much in common with Amnon. We are so quick to identify ourselves uh, with, with, with Tamar in this story, but if we're reading this story properly and rightly, we must also identify with Amnon as well. Therefore, even though it is right to be angry regarding the injustice that surround us, our cries and our our cries for justice must be impacted, they must be shaped, they must be influenced by our cries for mercy. A few minutes ago, we sang, I will wait for you. Out of the depths I cry to you, and some of you have done that. In darkest places, I will call, incline your ear to me, uh, hear a new cry for mercy, Lord. I will wait for you, I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you, I will wait for you, surely wait for you till my soul is satisfied. Listen, the, the scriptures are filled with one example after another of God's faithfulness. And they are also filled with one example after another, of one promise after another, that God will one day bring justice to the earth. That he will one day right all wrongs. That we, he will one day wipe away every tear. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes if we're really honest, it feels as if God is being just as silent as David was. And that's nothing new. This is a way this is something Christians have have struggled with for centuries. In fact, the Apostle Peter in his Second Peter chapter three, look what he says to you. He says, Now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, you should remember the things that are promised, the things that are coming. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days and they'll say, well, where is the promise of his coming? Where's this promise of justice? Where's this promise of restoration? Where's this this promise of forgiveness? Where's this promise of righting all wrongs? He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but rather he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's another promise. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. May God be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that has been said. There's so much that has been left unsaid. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to minister to us, to remind us that we've been forgiven, to remind us that you are our protector. Lord, it is our desire that you would be glorified, that you would be honored in our lives today, tomorrow, and in the future. Lord, if there's somebody here who needs healing, who's been carrying the burden the pain of something that was done to them, Lord, I pray that they would speak up, that they would seek the counsel and seek the comfort. That they would recognize that there is a man who has done so much for them. His name is Jesus. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.